For the week of September 18th, 2022, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 594, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news-making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And outside St. George's Chapel, I'm Michael Giltz. Hold on, hold on. St. George's Chapel, I'm looking, oh wait, I know what this is. I know why you're there. You're, you know, kind of an honorary member of the royal family. We've talked about that before, how they they, they wouldn't give you a sir or a lord or a, you know, but but they say, okay, yeah, sure. You can call yourself an honorary member. Sure. That's yeah. right. I am a British subject, colonial born because I was born in Bermuda. And that's very rare this these days. Once upon a time, a third of the world was a British subject, colonial born. But the sun has set on the British Empire and on the Queen, and I am exhausted. I'm not actually outside St. George's Chapel, but I did wake up at 4 blanking 30 in the morning because it was important to my mom, who's 93, and she wanted to watch. So I had to make sure that she was up and the TV was right and everything was good and watched it with her. So I'm tired. I'm a little woozy. Well, okay. You know, you know, when you think about it, you said, you know, a third of the, the world was under colonial rule. Yeah. Uh, if you think about it, Queen Elizabeth II, and you know, the U.S. is 245 years old. She has been alive or was Queen of England, Queen of England, I should say, for you like know, a fourth, almost a fourth of our of our nation's history. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's pretty remarkable. That is. Uh, I can't wait to see what the remarkable ratings will be because every channel was showing this. How many people will tune in from all over the world? That's going to be very interesting to hear. It, she was the first monarch uh, to have her wedding shown. Uh, you know, televised. It's shown in movie theaters mostly, but on television. Her coronation was shown on television. Uh, that was a first. We used to, we saw pe- a procession in the streets for a previous monarch, but this was the first time the ceremony inside was shown on television. And now she's the first monarch to have certain portions of her funeral televised to the world. So she sets records all the time. And I bet a lot of people tuned in. I can't wait to find out. And I bet we'll find out quicker than we did on the Emmy Awards because last week we delayed our our recording a day because we wanted to cover the Emmys. And normally... You get the overnights overnight. You know, something happens last night. The next morning, you've got the overnight ratings. But the Emmys, they waited until 7 p.m., 7 that night to tell us. I think they looked at the ratings and said, yeah, let's keep this quiet. Um, give it to Bob and tell him to slow walk it. <laughs> 7 yeah. at night. 7 and that's insane. It was an all-time low for the Emmys. Again, less than 6 million people watched the Emmy Awards. And no, that's not going to raise in the live plus seven or 30 because it's a live event and people want to see it when it happens so uh, that's a disaster they need to ring the alarm bell and say we need to completely rethink what we're doing when it comes to the emmy awards broadcast we need to make this better that's certainly what happened at the academy that oversees the oscars and i bet that's one of the stories we'll talk about this week yes indeed that is what uh one of the stories we're going to talk about but i think that tallying up all of the viewership is uh, the speed at which that's done is directly uh, in proportion to how few people watched your 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 televised One, event. One, two, seven, so, done. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like so our podcast. Done. Like our podcast. One, two, right, my mom, my cousin, done. <laughs> yeah, you're the one. You're the one listening to it. <laughs> and if you are listening to us, tell them what to do, Sperling. 
Well, uh, you mean to, to how to contact us? Yeah, or yeah, yeah. Tell them now. Don't waste any time. They should be oh, rating and reviewing right. the show on iTunes. They should they should be subscribing to the show. They should share a link with their friends on their social media. Yeah, we're on, you know, the Google Podcast directory. We're on Spotify, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, anywhere they give podcasts away for free. You can, you know, you can usually find us and subscribe to us. We can also be reached via email, dirt at showbizsandbox.com. That's D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. We're also on voicemail. Please call, leave us a voicemail, and we'll play it on the show. 888-567-SAND. That's 888 888- Five six seven seven two six three. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox, and we are on Facebook. You can like our page at facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox. Are we on Amazon? I think we are on Amazon, yes. Oh, okay, that's cool. So uh, if we're subscribing to us on Amazon and we listen to this new episode, what will we hear about? Well, first we'd hear about how you were outside St. George's Cathedral and then, oh wait, no, you mean the stories we're covering? Well, That's this right. week on show, yeah, well, this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are putting away our black morning suits and uh, heading back into the world. And that is, yes, a reference to Queen Elizabeth II's funeral. Certainly Warner Brothers Discovery isn't hasn't let any moss grow under its feet. They're bringing some magic to movie theaters, Magic Mike, that is. Oh, and they're so laden with debt that apparently that makes it inevitable the company will go for another big deal. That's like me maxing out on my credit cards and deciding now is the time to buy a Tesla. A- actually, a Tesla, a Tesla, that sounds, uh, that sounds like a good idea. Oh, that, yeah, you know what? Maybe I buy the Tesla and then max out my credit cards. Keep going, keep going, keep going. Okay, well, Toronto (laughs) has a big winner, and this means a certain distinguished filmmaker might have a close encounter with an Oscar come Academy Award time. I guess, wonder who it is. Wonder (laughs) who it is. Uh, Speaking of the Academy Awards, we'll update you on some major behind-the-scenes moves. On Inside Baseball, we talk about Woody Allen. I know, wait, don't hang up on us yet. The director is not retiring after his 50th film. Even if he should. (laughs) <laughs> even yeah, well, even if he should have done it after his forty-sixth, uh, but whenever it stops, certainly his career will end with kind of a whimper, not a bang. Some recent films were barely released in the U.S., if at all. Did he keep working too long and harm his reputation? Mm, there are some people that would say he harmed his reputation in other ways, or in fact, have the last twenty years been some of his most successful since the nineteen seventies? We'll explain it. We will break it down. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. And we just buried a woman queen. Maybe one day we'll have a woman king. In fact, that day might be today. That's right. And I would like, along with all the exhibitors of the world, to thank the queen for having her funeral on a Monday. (laughs) <laughs> the world we're looking at worldwide box office for the week ending September 18th and the number one film is in fact Viola Davis is the woman king it opened to 19 million dollars this week a solid opening here in North America it costs 50 million dollars to make so it's gonna need good legs to become a big hit but uh, the audience scores were great I saw it at a drive and it was pretty fun you know not a great movie but it was fun had some good action very old-fashioned in a way but gritty and fun and handled a tricky historical context with grace and uh, without twisting the facts too much so uh, uh, it's an admirable movie for sure Uh, that is the number one movie around the world at a very slow week at the box office at number two is the Chinese comedy hey bro 
or give me five, as it's more often um, translated. This is this riff off the Back to the Future. It grows $15 million this week. It's at $36 million and counting. Over in Korea, we have Confidential Assignment 2, International. This movie made $14 million this week. Felt pretty strong after the holiday weekend and its opening week, uh, but it's now at $35 million. Then opening a little wider is that romantic comedy starring Julie Roberts and George Clooney. It's called Ticket to Paradise. It made $13 million this week. By the way, something I read got it wrong because they are divorced parents who head to Bali, not Hawaii, to try and stop their kid from marrying someone that they've just met because that's a horrible mistake and George Clooney and Julie Roberts will absolutely not get back together. Not going to happen. I did go see the Woman King at a drive-in, by the way. That was fun. I haven't been in a while. Uh, then we have a horror flick, also good at a drive-in. It's called Barbarian. It made $11 million this week. It's at $22 million and counting. Now we have an Indian film from the Bollywood territory, the Bollywood area. It's in Hindu. It's now owned by Disney. It's hopefully the first of a big Astraverse. It's a part of a trilogy. It's called Brahmastra Part 1 Shiva. Not great news this week. It made about $10 million this week. It's at $38 million total, but like The Woman King, it cost $50 million to make. So that's falling pretty hard and fast. We'll keep an eye on The Woman King, which I think is going to have great legs, um, but we'll see about Brahmastra. That's looking like a tough sell when it comes to making the second and third film. Uh, DC League of Super Pets is next. That also made $10 million. That's at about $180 million and counting. And Bullet Train from Brad Pitt, that made $10 million. That's at a nice, neat $222 million worldwide, but what would be even neater is if it made $270 million because that would triple its budget of 90. Tom Cruise keeps chugging along with Top Gun Maverick. Minions keeps making money. Moon Man over in China, that made $8 million this week. It's at $445 million worldwide. Then we got a wider release for an Agatha Christie style mystery. It's called See How They Run. Nobody is allowed to make a movie based on Agatha Christie's play The Mousetrap until six months after the show has closed. That's not unusual. They were always worried if you made a movie from a play or musical that no one would want to go see it. Now, Chicago got a big punch in the arm at the box office when the movie version came out and was a big hit. So it's not true anymore. Phantom of the Opera came out decades ago in the movie theaters, and it's still running on Broadway, but not for long. So that rule isn't there anymore. But when Agatha Christie delivered her play, The Mousetrap, she said, nope, no movie version until the play has closed for at least six months. Well, the play's still running, but people wanted to make a movie about it. This movie sort of says, all right, we'll make a movie about the making of The Mousetrap and we'll kill somebody. And so that's how they sort of created an Agatha Christie mystery around The Mousetrap in a way, though it's not technically The Mousetrap. Moving down the list, looking for some news. Uh, we missed a, a couple movies. Table for Six is a Hong Kong family comedy that opened up last week. It's at $8 million total. The same is true for Song of Spring. This is a Chinese film. Couldn't figure out what it was about, but it made about, it's at $7 million total. So neither of those is setting the world on fire, but we missed their openings last week. We also, falling off the charts for us for a few weeks, was another film, New Gods, Yang Jian. That made four million dollars over the weekend so it's not the full week's total it's at about 66 million dollars total that one had just fallen off our radar it wasn't covered by anybody we pull information from it wasn't until one of the trades did a roundup of movies in china 
and and uh, Korea that we caught up on these films and found out, oh, we've been missing some movies. Uh, looking down lower, uh, Orphan, First Kill. This was a prequel to a horror movie made in 2009. Why did they wait 13 years to make a prequel? Not doing so great. The first one grossed $80 million. This one's at $15 million. I'm sorry, yes, $15 million. But here's how you do it. Pearl. Pearl is a prequel to a horror film called X. X only grossed $15 million, but you know what? It only cost like a million dollars to make. Now, Pearl, the prequel to X, that's coming out, let me go here, six months after the first movie came out. Clearly, they were ready with this one. It, too, only cost a million dollars, and this opening weekend, it made $3 million, so it's already tripled its budget. Obviously, it had some serious uh, advertising, but probably on the low level because it's a cheap, low-budget horror film. So, yeah, don't wait 13 years. Wait more like three months. <laughs> uh, Moon Age Daydream, that made some good news in North America. Worldwide, it made $2.6 million. Here in the U.S., it's on 170 screens. I should say North America. It hit the top 10 with more than $1 million grossing. I think it goes a little bit wider next week. Um, I kind of want to see it. It looks like a bit of a fever dream and a little crazy plot. Less uh, documentary. It is. There's no. There's no like through line. I mean, it's it's interesting. It's a movie that David Bowie himself, as a musical artist, would love. Not only for the music, but the way it's put together, using all of the archival material, and he narrates it himself based on his own interviews and his own recordings and the way he. I mean, it, it's it's very well put together. And Fever Dream is probably a very good way to to describe it. Mm -hmm. And way down the list is another movie called Fall. This is a in very small indie film. It costs about $3 million to make. A very tiny budget, clever little concept. Two women are climbing up a radio tower and then they get stranded at the top and have to try to survive during a horrible storm or something. I forget what's happening. But a really, you know, simple, high concept idea. It has delivered at the box office. It's at $12 million, so it's quadrupled its budget given a great showcase for two actresses and a, a cool, clever little movie. So congrats to them. Now, this is about the mid of September, right? It's September 19th when we're recording this show. China's National Day comes on October 1st. So that's a big holiday for China. So you can expect a number of big movies to come out, or at least they'll have some firepower. Audiences will certainly show up if they can, assuming some lockdowns have decreased. We still have a number of lockdowns. That's one of the factors keeping the Chinese box office a little tamped down. But that's not China's National Day. We just had National Cinema Day, which is not like National Day at all. But uh, what are we hearing about that? We know it was a good success, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I think there were 8 million admissions on National Cinema Day. And of course, as expected, we're hearing that, of course, it's going to be done again. Well, it's being done in, in Germany. KinoFest was last week. And they said... We will do you one better. We will have a National Cinema Day times two. The entire weekend is National Cinema Day. Uh, National Cinema and, Weekend. Yeah. And uh, in India, it was supposed to be September 16th. However, they decided, whoa, wait a second. Actually, we have this big movie uh, that, that came out. Uh, and it's doing quite well, so we don't want to <laughs> cut, <laughs> cut it off the legs at the box office. <laughs> yeah. So I, I, uh, what was the name of the... Is it Brahmastra? Uh, that's the big movie. Yeah, and that movie yeah. needs every penny it can make. So if they suddenly made the uh, admissions really cheap, that would whatever hope it had would be gone, perhaps. So, so it was pushed by one week. So this this next weekend, September twenty third, is when that, when that will happen. Right. So if uh, U.S. does it again, people are saying, okay, we're going to do it again. Maybe not on Labor Day, or maybe not even on the weekend. 
To which I'm like, what are you talking about? Why wouldn't, like, what, how stupid are you? It worked. Let's not do it again. Let's do something different. Let's do it on a Tuesday. It's like, we've had like budget Tuesdays and budget Wednesdays since I was a little kid. You know, you'd go on a Tuesday or something and they would have discount prices all day, even in the night. We have matinees and other things. This is a way to promote movies. Labor Day weekend is a smart one. There's usually not any big movies involved. If you, I would say do it twice a year. Why do it just once a year? Do it in a fallow period in the winter when there's not a lot of movies coming out. You know, remind people, hey, it's fun to go to the movies. What do you say? Yeah, no, I think uh, I agree. Uh, well, I don't know about doing it too often, but certainly do it uh and be consistent you know, on a weekend yeah do it on a weekend do it, uh, there's no good other day monday tuesday's like no no <laughs> just do it on, on a saturday just like you did last time everything will be fine and if they're worried that people will find out it's coming and say well i'm gonna wait to go see that movie well duh they might but that's okay they're also coming back to see movies they've already seen like top gun maverick movies that have been out there for a while so yes that's the point of a discount. You get people who are a little money conscious to go to the cinemas again. They have a good time, and then they don't want to wait a year before they return another time. That's the whole point, to get people who are a little money conscious to say, yeah, I have fun going to the movies. I'm not going to wait till next Labor Day. I'm going to go in a week. So here's the thing. Next week, when Avatar, the re-release, you know, the 2009 movie, mm -hmm. uh, comes out in theaters, if it does incredibly well, let's say it makes $19 million, like uh, our, our good friends, uh, The Woman King, uh, what exactly is the, you know, movies are dead. Nobody goes to the movies anymore. And then, you know, a movie that's been available for 13 years goes and makes $19 million. I think the excuse will be, well, yeah, all you need is the most popular movie of all time. And then, yeah, then you can make $19 million. And if it doesn't make a ton of movie, they'll draw the wrong conclusion from that as well. They'll say, oh, look, see, nobody cares. But it's like, well, no, it's widely available. <laughs> It'll be interesting right. to see if there are young people. I mean, I thought, what's the point? But James Cameron said, my kids have never seen this movie on the big screen. I bet he has a big screen at home, by the way. But he said they really enjoyed it more, seeing it on the big screen, if they've only seen it on Blu-ray and at home. You know, and he said it makes a big difference to see Of course, he's a big promoter of going to the movies, but that actually made sense to me. I thought, you know, it's the biggest film of all time. They used to re-release Gone with the Wind and Sound of Music and all these movies over and yeah. over again. No reason. Disney films came out every seven years. There's no reason why you couldn't get new people to come back to the cinemas to see Avatar, especially remastered and revamped up. So we'll have to see. Fingers crossed for him. So I know there's one movie I want to see at the box office. There's a little movie with a little stripping in it. It's Magic Mike's Last Dance. This movie was made for streaming. They were only going to put it on HBO Max, which I thought was stupid. This is a movie people love to see in groups. They want to hang out. You have hen parties. They go together. They have fun. They laugh. It's a big social type of movie. And it made no sense to be a streamer only. Um, so Warner Brothers Discovery came to their senses and said, yeah, you're right. So they're going to put this movie in theaters. It's going to hit theaters in the winter. So that's good news. At least they're doing some things right. What I don't understand is why they're still looking for a new head of D.C., um, I don't know why they don't have confidence in Walter Hamada. He's launched Joker and Aquaman. He's rebooted the Batman. He made smart, smaller bets like Shazam. I don't know what you think is going wrong there, but that looks like a good job to me. 
but a variety. I think he may have said, look, you know, if I could have, I would have walked when you, when you pulled back. No, this was before that. They had no confidence in him before that. Of course he wants oh, to go okay. now, but they had no confidence in him in the first place. They kept saying, we need a new Kevin Feige. We need our own Kevin Feige when they have a guy doing the job very well right now. So they're just fools. Uh, but anyway, Variety story. Variety did a story about all this. And in the story, they said, of course, Warner Brothers Discovery is so laden with debt that another big move is inevitable. We already made fun of that in the intro. And I still can't wrap my head around this idea that Warner Brothers Discovery will merge with NBC Universal. Variety presented that like a fait accompli. They said, well, then, yeah, they'll, well, then it, they'll have scale and a serious streaming service. Yeah, like, Warner, like HBO Max with CNN and Discovery isn't a serious streaming service. They need Peacock, too? Well, no, the, the Peacock needs them more, more to the point. No, and they're course, talking about Warner Brothers needs, needs more stuff. Warner Brothers needs to make this move. I understand uh, it'll be uh, more of a merger, but they're not talking from the perspective of NBC Universal. They're talking about the perspective from Warner Brothers, that Warner Brothers Discovery needs to make a move so they can be really big enough to compete. And this can't happen until April of 2024 for various legal reasons. But at that point, they say then negotiations can officially begin. And this is all but inevitable. That just blows my mind. That would be insane if they merged. Well, a couple things. Uh, number one. So I'm gonna I'm gonna rewind us a little bit. All right. Uh, Avatar. One of the reasons to release that. There's two big reasons. One, as you mentioned, there are people out there who haven't seen the movie, and it's 13 years old on a big screen. Yeah. Or 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 even at all mm -hmm. that you know they have this sequel coming out in December. Remind and them, and then they're like, yeah, yeah, they're like ten year olds that haven't seen the movie. Well, guess what? Now they can see the movie. Number two for that is the fact that they can then get all the exhibitors prepared for 3D again. Yeah. They can say, remember 3D? Now they have, the, they'll have, the, they'll have the glasses, they'll clean them all yeah. off, pull them out of the basement, <laughs> wear the right, cobwebs, exactly. brush away the cobwebs. <laughs> <laughs> right. So that that's that that's the avatar of it all. Very good. Uh, Magic Mike's Last Dance. Last week on the CJ Cinema Summit, we had the heads of distribution, international and domestic, uh, Jeff Goldstein and Andrew Cripps. Uh, heads of distribution of? Sorry, of Warner Brothers. Thank you. Uh, and we asked them, hey, why don't you release some of these streaming movies in theaters first? What's the worst that happens? Even if you put no money behind it, you'll make some money. I mean, maybe you won't make a mint. And they said, look, you're right, but it's not that easy. And we said, come on, just put it in. Make a DCP for, for, for heaven's sake. Just I'll carry it into the movie theater. And they said, well, look, these movies were made for the small screen, not necessarily visually, but contractually. Well, of course, so of course, they issues. should write, but that's why you don't make contracts saying you're only doing, you should be making these movies to be theatrically released, unless it really makes no sense theatrically. There's no way Magic Mike makes sense not theatrical. There's no way you should have made that movie thinking we're just going to go straight to streaming. That's just dumb. Well, and then there's all these like licensing issues of, oh, well, of, we licensed the course, music, so now course, we've got to go of back. Course. And, That's bull yeah. That is not an answer. That is, we're stupid. We didn't think of it. It's like, no, they made them only for streaming rather than saying we should be making Magic Mike for theatrical and then it can come to streaming. They just think streaming is the only thing that matters. The contracts are un unimportant. You make them properly at the time when you make the movie. You decide, you don't decide now to make most movies theatrical. You decide when you make them and you green light them. So the 
the contracts will reflect that. You're making a six-part miniseries, that's clearly going straight to streaming. You're making right. a Magic Mike's Last Dance where women want to go and have a drink and enjoy themselves at the movie theater, that should be made for theatrical. That was a dumb movie to send to streaming only. They had to change their minds and it was a big hassle, but the problem is not the contracts. The problem is the decision-making process when they're greenlighting the movies. Yeah, the result is the contracts. Right, right. The, yeah, the contract is And then the, the result on top of that, so the, then the, the side effect, of course, is then the movie might cost more because then you have to go back and redo the contracts, right, which the right. legal work itself costs right. more, but no, then all you of a sudden you, you have to make, yeah. make the smart choice at the time when you're greenlighting. Not everything yeah. should just... And obviously, you're spending twenty million dollars to P and A a movie, or you know, is is a big, significant spend decision. But yeah. it makes the movies more valuable. You're advertising to them to the world. If they're so bad, you don't think they can survive theatrically? Well, then you shouldn't have greenlit it in the first place. You know, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, anyway. So some movies well, won't well, survive theatrically, of course. Like, don't worry, darling. Uh, there was a big story in the New York Times. This movie opens on Friday, on September twenty third. It's a new film by Olivia Wilde, starring Harry Styles and Florence Pugh. Uh, it looks sort of interesting in the trailer, but then it came out in, in the in the in the. Uh, festival circuit and they're doing a big story about how all the bad publicity swirling around the film is going to hurt it commercially the director and the leading actress are feuding and, and Harry Styles spit at Chris Pines but it's not true of course it's silly it's ridiculous women are having cat fights it's horrible press stuff it's horrible stuff it's ridiculous distracting from the movie but the simple fact is the reason the movie won't do good on Friday is not because of some stupid stuff most people aren't aware of it's because the movie's bad yeah, that's really the issue. Right. Is it got horrible, that people who saw it. horrible reviews. By the yeah. way, Variety breathlessly told us the film got a four-minute standing ovation at its public screening in Venice. They know a four-minute standing ovation is nothing, that it's total pro forma at a film festival. If you get a four-minute ovation, that's just people who are happy to be at a movie. You get a 15-minute ovation, people weep and give you their babies. That's news, not that you should really report that. We talked about this before. Well, look, if they're giving you babies, that should be reported because that's a child care right. trafficking issue. Right. You know what they should be saying is the reviews from the time the movie played at Venice. Instead of saying a four minute ovation, they should say terrible reviews. This is a period film with a little high concept. It ain't going to work without good reviews. This is not a movie. It's not a horror movie. It's not going to click without good reviews. Some movies do, of course. This one probably would not do well without reviews. We'll see where it ends up. But if it doesn't do well, it's going to because it was pilloried. People really dislike like to this movie and i well, think that was, that's, a, that's a warner brothers movie yeah okay there you go and you were talking about warner brothers and nbc this is a a rumor that has been circulating for quite some time and frankly it's not a rumor it's being made up by the media the media is saying well maybe they could merge maybe they could you know comcast could buy warner brothers warner brothers and, and basically they're all looking at the fact that warner brothers has 55 billion dollars in debt so okay, they so need more debt one. so they need more debt they need to buy a Tesla. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so that said, uh, I get it. At the same time, I'm against it. As you know, I oh. think it's just the bigger they are, the harder they fall. It's it's just a big pain in the neck. Uh, now, the reason the 2024, there are many reasons for April of 2024, but negotiations start openly all the time. So, But no, they're not allowed to legally because of the closing of other stuff. They're, they are prohibited from discussing right. this. They cannot just. They well, they're not discussing. Negotiations. It. They're just having so, so, lunch and looking at the weather. Yeah. 
we're going to talk about Goldman Sachs in a minute and their little conference, their investor conference. Mm-hmm. So uh, Bob Chapek was there and Bob Chapek has a problem. It's called Hulu. Hulu, he owns only two thirds of. The other third of it is owned by Comcast, Brian Robbins. And there is a drop dead date that in 2024, Disney must buy it for at least $27 billion unless a better deal comes along. $27 billion? Billion. Billion. How do you price a streaming service when nobody's selling a streaming service? So the problem that, that so they started talking about this openly, like Bob Chapek How did anyone value it? Hulu as that $27 billion? I don't know. I, I mean, mean, it doesn't have, most of its library is, is not. And most of the stuff it shows, it doesn't own. Its own personal library is like The Handmaid's Tale. You know, and other stuff. I mean, most of the stuff on Hulu historically was like reruns from the night before well, from other that, networks. That, that is already an agreement, okay, uh, that was inked back in 2019, well, probably before then, to take full control of the streaming service that, you know, Disney cut that deal with Comcast in 2024. So now they're saying, unless, by the way, a better deal comes along or a more appropriate deal comes along before that. So, of course, what... Bob Chapek is saying is, I need this to be done right now. I need I need to like merge all of these these streaming services into one as soon as possible. And Brian Robbins is saying publicly to the press and to the media, well, gee, you know, there's a right price for that. If you gave me the right price, so we'd give it up. And and uh, you know, of course, you've got uh, you've got Bob Chapek going. Well, I mean, it's worth something, but it can't be worth that much. <laughs> and and if, you know, for, if you're working for Peacock, you got to look at Brian Robbins and go, "What do you mean? It's certainly a valuable property. You've got a streaming service that's a valuable Peacock." So it's this weird, like negotiating in public moment mm-hmm. where they're not really negotiating, but they're negotiating. Right. And of course, they do have good programming uh, beyond The Handmaid's Tale. They had Little Fires Everywhere. They got Dope Sick and Pam and Tommy and The Dropout. They've got some comedies like Penis or Pen 15, however you're supposed to refer to that. Only Murders in the Building, Reservation Dogs, which is a really good show. Um, You know, so they do have solid stuff in their library, but it's not a huge library. You know, it's only been around for, you've only been producing some shows for a few years. So that's a crazy valuation. But things happen crazily, don't they? Like at Toronto. Uh, Toronto Film Festival, they've just wrapped up. Uh, we're talking about award season. Don't worry, darling, we'll probably not be a player. But uh, the People's Choice Award at Toronto, that's a great precursor to the Oscars, which means Steven Spielberg's The Fablemans is a hot tip for the Academy Awards. That won the top prize uh, from voted by, by audience members at Toronto. The runners-up were Women Talking by Sarah Polly, who also has, also has a great book out, a great new movie, and Glass Onion, a Knives Out Mystery, was a big hit for the fans at Toronto. Gee, Netflix, would you really hate having a couple hundred million dollars in cash from putting this movie in theaters? I guess so. Yeah, well, I mean, when you look at the People's Choice Award winners, going all the way back, I think uh, Amelie won it in, in 2001, and I think... Uh, it's really come on fire in the last 10, 15 years. It's, I mean, it's been around for ages, but yes, it's, it's really, it's been a, you know, you're a you're, you're good, good bet to get a nomination, at least. You're not going to win this. Slumdog Millionaire. Yeah. Precious, the King's Speech. I mean, I, Silver Linings Playbook. I could just go 12 Years a Slave. I could go on and on. It's definitely a huge help. 
to win that award. Uh, but there were lots of, I, I don't even, was Don't Worry Darling there? I know that uh, Well, Mr. that already premiered at Venice, so that wouldn't count, yeah. you know. But yeah, so there were, there were other good movies, um, some good documentaries like Black Ice, that won the Best Doc Award from the audiences. It's uh, by Hubert Davis, and it's about racism in hockey and uh, something I didn't know about, the Colored Ice Hockey League of the Maritimes, sort of the hockey league equivalent of the Negro League. And before you dismiss it as like very Canada-centric and they only voted because they're Canadians, just remember Drake is a producer on it, so he will be able to get that documentary a lot of attention. But what wasn't getting a lot of attention was the market. Now, we've heard that the markets are moving very slowly in the fall. Con was so-so. The fall was very, very moribund. Does this mean there's not going to be enough movies for people to pick up for theaters next year, Sperling? Are, are, we know theaters are dying for product exhibitors are like please release more movies will there be enough movies in the pipeline for 2023 well you know it, it's here's the thing first of all uh, a lot of these studios uh pushed their movies i mean you saw warner brothers doing that you saw disney doing that so, so they have the a problem big that backlog I, of big movies yes in fact even at CinemaCon, which was in April this year, I was looking at what uh, I think it was Warner Brothers as I was watching the Warner Brothers presentation and the Universal presentation. I went, well, their 2022s are going to be OK, but boy, 2023, they just showed us like 10, 15 movies that are all 2023. <laughs> They're going to have to figure out which movie they moved to 2024. That's how many movies they have. Then you have, of course, all of these movies that are either on streamers that may go into theaters or just for like a week, like blonde or something. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and then you, you know, part of the problem also is that rather than make a movie for an independent that might get picked up at a festival, you know, you've got, uh, you know, uh, Inuritu going directly to Netflix and saying, let me make Bardo for you. Uh, blonde, you just mentioned made for Netflix, uh, premiering at festivals this year. Uh, Bones and All, already MGM UA. Don't Worry Darling was Warner Brothers. Empire of Light is Searchlight. The Fablemans is Universal. The Sun with uh, Hugh Jackman, that's Sony Picture Classics. Women Talking, the Sarah Polly movie, that's United Artists. The Whale. But this isn't big- unusual that there'd be lots of movies coming to festivals that already have backing. People are getting involved earlier and earlier. That's been going on for a long time. People don't. I, th- I think it's happening. In other words, that line is moving further and further up because as stage. we mentioned. It's the script stage, right? Yeah, as we mentioned. You know, Mubi last week was saying, we need to own it from the get-go before it gets made because otherwise we can't control the pay-one window. And you're right. You don't control the pay-one window when you don't buy it early enough. And that's what you're finding out. Now, that said, there are still lots of movies being picked up. Uh, You know, you had In Her Hands picked up by Netflix. You had All the Beauty and the Bloodshed, Neon, uh, picked that up. Uh, Neon also picked up How to Blow Up a Pipeline about environmental activists who try to sabotage an oil pipeline. That was one of the bigger deals that was done. And people are saying, I've heard people say that that movie, How to Blow Up a Pipeline, is the best debut since Quentin Tarantino's uh, Reservoir Dogs. So I'm eagerly anticipating that movie. Uh, Alexander Payne, remember him? I do. The Descendants? The Descendants? Yeah, and of course, uh, Sideways and lots of other movies. He is teaming up with Paul Giamatti again for a movie called, uh, what what the heck is the name of that movie? The Holdovers. The Holdovers, thank you. I was like, wait, Blue Jean? No, I mean, you put that in there. So Blue, uh, The Holdovers, Paul Giamatti, it's a Christmas movie. It's going to come out in 2023. Focus paid $30 million for this movie. This movie better be amazing for $30 million. That's not a number Alexander Payne usually hits. No, that's the problem. 
Uh, I mean, I, well, actually, I think, didn't he? Uh, the Descendants may have made that, and Sideways certainly did. Well, I'll, I'll tell you that shortly. <laughs> I don't know that that's true. He did About Schmidt. He did Sideways, The Descendants, Nebraska, Downsizing. I'm not sure any of them made $90 million. Maybe The Descendants because it had a... And, but I don't know what their budgets are, but it's certainly not an area he usually plays in. Uh, certainly about Schmidt, which Jack Nicholson made $105 million. Sideways made $110 million. The Descendants made $178 million. Nebraska made $27 million. And Downsizing made $55 million with a budget of about $70 million. So it's his last few movies that have not done it. For a while there, he was hitting that. And for maybe $30 million for a movie that you think can get to $90 million is a good bet. He's certainly done it before. True. This, well, is, this is what happens we'll when you put out. stuff in and I don't see it until the show begins. <laughs> I, have to, I have to do my analysis on the fly. So you're saying there's a lot of product out there. A lot of it's already picked up, so the markets are slow because movies get picked up before they get to festivals. So it's just it's, it's the way of the world now. There are not going to be a lot of good yeah. big movies opening up and surprising everybody. They will have all seen it at the script stage and decided whether they want to step in. Well, one person they want to, you know, it's... it's uh, step it's, away from? Yes, is it? <laughs> Is maybe R. Kelly, you know, in our social justice section, he already faces 30 years in prison for previous trials. Now he's been found guilty of charges related to when he was videotaping himself sexually abusing a 14-year-old girl. And if you videotape yourself sexually abusing a 14-year-old girl, uh, well, you know, not only are you hateful and evil, you're stupid, too. Yeah, which is a crime. Yes, that is a crime. So thank God for that. That's good to see. But some good news for some people of color. Jamie Foxx, we've moved on to streaming. He's got a hit movie. It's not in theaters. It's only on streaming, but it's doing well. It's called Day Shift. It opened up uh, about a month ago on streaming on Netflix. So Jamie Foxx is in the Netflix business. He made a movie about a dad who poses, I think, as like a handyman or he's doing electrical work for people, but he's actually killing vampires so he can put his little girl through a, a special school because she's so smart. Something like that. It's heartwarming and funny, and he kills vampires. And it's called Day Shift. And it's That the- sounds like literally that movie was made in a brain storming session. <laughs> yeah, like, I don't know. We need vampires. How do we get vampires into this movie? I don't know, but how do we get a cute kid? Uh, what if... <laughs> We need a movie star. Well, I haven't seen it, so I don't know if it's good. But I do know that Netflix does pretty good documentaries. They're sort of trying to do what ESPN does with 30 for 30. They have a show called Untold, which offers up sports documentaries, just like ESPN's franchise. And their new season dropped about a month ago because we're covering the streaming numbers for the week of August 15th through August 21st. So this is stuff that dropped about a month ago. And their new season of Untold has dropped. They got a new documentary every week for four weeks. And that's back on the charts. And so we're sort of at the mercy of Nielsen, which can only tell us a limited slice of what people are watching in the United States. But it's the best metric we have, and it's independent. Otherwise, we have to depend on people like Amazon and uh, HBO Max to tell us what's going on. And they don't always want to tell us. We know The Sandman had another big week. It's the number one original series for the, a month ago. And it was a, watched almost another billion minutes. So that's holding pretty steady. People are definitely watching that series and checking it out. They are watching it. They are seeing it. It's two and a half weeks now, three weeks that they've been watching this show. But House of the Dragon? They're getting quiet. The debut episode was now seen by more than 30 million people. 
I assume that's worldwide. Uh, they say, don't worry about the overnights. Episode four ticked back up again after episode three went down. And that was just because of football and with John Oliver. So it debuted later. So don't worry about that. But what they're not doing is updating us on the total number of people who've watched episode two and episode three. Wouldn't be a shock if there was a big drop after episode one, not because they hate it, just because people tuned in out of curiosity. What we want to know is when the show levels off and find out what its new normal is for this series. Is it 10 million a week, 5 million a week, 20 million a week? That's what we want to know, but we can't because there's no independent people. Same thing with the Lord of the Rings. I've actually watched four episodes now. I actually think it's pretty good. It's not embarrassing. It's not The Hobbit. And I'm actually kind of enjoying it, but I'm a Lord of the Rings geek. I worry that people who don't care about the Lord of the Rings will not know what's going on or care that that's Isildur and they know what's going to happen to Isildur a thousand years in the future. So, but I have a friend who doesn't really, he's not into it, but he's watching it and he's enjoying it enough. So maybe that's doing okay too, but we'll never know because they won't tell us. And I think they're missing out. They can get free publicity. They get great what helps propel word of mouth. And if a show's going to flop, hiding the numbers doesn't stop it from flopping. It's not like people say, well, I don't know how that move show's doing. I think I'll check it out. No, yeah, but you know, you know, I, I've heard this described. Uh, it used to be, uh, there used to be ratings that were called the minute by minutes. No, and they of course, tell yeah. you exactly minute by minute. And, and if a joke bombed, they'd be like, you know, everybody tuned out when you told that joke about the kid. Okay, so no more kid jokes because obviously that doesn't. And it used to drive. We don't need writers. Minute, well, that's got nothing to do with what we're talking see, about. Well, well, wait a second. All right. And now you have the exact opposite. You <laughs> literally have the, like, you never hear about the ratings. And who does that benefit? Does that benefit the writers? Well, they it don't doesn't have to take benefit notes. anyone. It doesn't it benefits benefit the executives. It does not. Not the, not the studio making the show. I don't care about a guy sitting in his office. It doesn't benefit anyone. You lose out on a ton of publicity. You lose out on success stories, building bigger and bigger because people hear it's doing well. You lose out on any chance to turn it around. You lose out on having a good story to tell. And for the bad shows, it's bad. Nobody cares. They were going to be bad anyway. You're like No bad show becomes a hit because you hide how bad the ratings are. Nobody's going to run to the box office because you won't tell us that a movie dropped 70% in its second weekend. That doesn't help anyone. Just knowledge is power share with everyone anyway by the way sperling we do the minute by minute analysis on the show my <sighs> jokes always go up <laughs> no your jokes go through the roof sperling keep them coming they're a big deal people love that stuff well if my jokes are a big deal then i wonder what you think about some of our stories in our big deal or big whoop segment this week's Big Deal or Big Whoop segment, like all of them, is where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story. I don't know whether this is a promotion or a demotion. CNN's Don Lemon will need to reset his internal clock, his circadian rhythm, if you will. <laughs> After hosting a primetime show on the network for years, Lemon is moving to the morning. He'll be co-hosting a show in the AM alongside Poppy Harlow, who has already been holding down the 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. time slot. Caitlin Collins will be a co-host and news anchor. It's a big move from CNN head Chris Licht, who made his bones on Morning Joe over at MSNBC, and then the CBS This Morning show before working on Stephen Colbert's Late Night show, with Lemon moving to the morning to compete against Today and Good Morning America and whatever's over on Fox and MSNBC. Uh, this means two hours of prime time now are up for grabs. They have no host for these two hours of prime times. A rotating series of hosts have been holding down Chris Cuomo's slot. 
once the network's flagship hour. And now Lemon's 10 p.m. slot will also be vacant. Big deal or big whoop? Oh, plus, of course, on MSNBC, Rachel Maddow has left. So that sort of a changing of the guard is always an opportunity. So there's a lot of flux in primetime. I think you know, I said this was going to happen. I said, you know, these news networks have got to get ready for the post-Trump era when ratings will inevitably plummet and everybody's going to say, well, why aren't the ratings? Well, because you don't have you don't have Trump. OK, you don't have a punching bag anymore. You don't have basically a, an entertainer as president. So, oh, well, more importantly, uh, I think this is a promotion for Don Lemon. Uh, primetime is great, but those morning shows are extremely lucrative. If you can make those morning shows work, there is a lot of money to be made. So they're a high priority for everybody who has one. And CNN has not really ever found its rhythm there. I think Don Lemon has the affable personality and the easygoing nature that works great in morning. He brought it to primetime, which made it sort of a refreshing change. And I think he would work perfectly there. I wouldn't want the job. I'd rather have the overnight. But, you know, I, I think this is a, a smart move, but it does open up two hours of prime time for CNN. Now, are they going to fill them with news shows? Because they said they wanted to pivot to news, which we know is BS. They just are trying to kowtow to their conservative stockholders. If they fill them with news shows that do news analysis, like Nightline, like the show that they had that was, you know, being a fact checker against themselves and other networks, that will prove they're telling the truth. If they just put in more talking heads like Don Lemon or Chris Cuomo or, or Anderson Cooper and, and all the others, well, then they're, they were lying all along. So we'll find out. Okay, for our next story, uh, you breaking know, I'm news. I'm to- sorry, breaking news. We interrupt this big deal, big whoop story to announce that another actor has been cast in the upkeep film Gran Turismo. That is all. Um, okay, actually, over the past two weeks or so, we've received multiple emails from all the trades announcing casting news for the movie Gran Turismo. That was based on the video game. First, they announced the actor David Harbour. He would be starring in the potential franchise directed by Neil Blomkamp. Then came Archie Maddox. How do you pronounce that? Maddox-y? I don't know. Uh, sorry, well, sorry, Archie, you're a talented actor on the TV show C. We apologize for not knowing how to pronounce your name. Yeah, well, now they've cast Orlando Bloom. By the way, shooting begins September 22nd, so we're pretty sure they knew who they had cast and could have announced them pretty much all at once. Instead, they doled out the info over several days and got a hit of media attention from all the trades every single time. Are the trades news outlets or... uh, Here's the thing. Are they news outlets or publicity firms? And is this a big deal or a big whoop? And I have something to say on the other end of this. Well, Go. more and more, they look like they're publicity firms doing work for the studios. I do not need an email in my inbox telling me about the fourth person cast in Gran Turismo or the 17th person cast in the Kevin Costner movie, which I'm actually sort of looking forward to. So that's how annoying it is. It's ridiculous. And they should not let them play games. They're like, yeah, that's okay. You could have told us that three days ago when you announced the other guy. We're not doing another story. That's how you treat that. It's ridiculous. So, okay, a couple things, one of which I should have mentioned during the Toronto bit. Okay, here's the thing. Uh, you mentioned this, uh, and being annoyed by this. I would uh, think maybe in the next week or two, we'll see the trades talking about how this is annoying. Because you mentioned the standing ovations at fa- film festivals. And now all the trades are writing about, how, I'm like, well, you guys are the ones writing about it. Stop writing about it. They are? Yes. 
all like IndieWire had it. Please did, stop. Did we, did we light a, a fire under them? <laughs> I don't know whether it was us or just everybody. It must However, have been us. That's how influential we are. <laughs> so we had a, a big debate about a publicist asking for the questions ahead of time for interviews. <laughs> Well, at Toronto this year, that was all you could do for their press conferences. They would not take any questions. questions from the floor. You had to have submitted them ahead of time. They were then vetted and a moderator picked the questions that and people were up in arms. The press was up in arms about this. So, Likewise, wow. publicists have been asking for, oh, you're doing a one on one. Can you please send the questions in ahead of time? I've and never had that in my entire life. A number of journalists are now complaining about it, and they're saying, and basically, what they said is exactly what you said, Michael. Right. So and, all these and, journalists are and saying, the New York Times if won't we accept it, yes, correct. Variety, and won't, all saying, Variety won't take it. So if you say no, you you can get you can get on somebody's blog, but you're not going to get in any reputable newspaper or trade publication unless they cave, which they shouldn't. And that is what the conversation is about. Don't cave. All journalists should act as one here and say, no, that's not how this game is played. Right. You might be trying to change the game and change the rules to that. We're not but there to play not- gotcha. We're just there to do our right. job. We're not trying to track somebody and trick them into saying something. You know, we're there to cover movies. Like, relax. <laughs> yeah. Oy vey. Uh, but speaking of oy vey, the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences, oy vey. No, that's no, it. That's a, no. Well, okay, look, they're, as you know, they're the people behind the Academy Awards. And they have uh, eventually... Finally, come to their senses. It has a lot of work to do, the, the organization, but in a public meeting with members, it at least addressed and acknowledged a host of problems. First, they hired veterans of live TV to produce the Oscars, which, of course, is a live TV show. <laughs> Go figure. Glenn Weiss and Ricky Kirshner have won Emmys for their work on live TV and have overseen 21 Tony Awards telecasts. So, duh, it's not a movie. It's a live event. It's forming a permanent team focused solely on the Academy Awards, so they won't be you know, starting from scratch every single year. They do make 75% of their revenue from the Academy Awards, so sounds like a smart idea. They will feature all awards on air live, which of course they did not last year. They won't turn the Oscars into a roast. They'll steal ideas from the Met Gala to make the red carpet even more of an event. I know how you can do that. Get rid of the publicists. They'll actually tell members... What is discussed at the super secret board of governor meetings? Is this all enough? Well, I guess it's a start, but is it a big deal or a big whoop? Uh, well, it's, it's, a, it's a big whoop until they deliver, but at least they're on the right path. I hope they sign those producers to a multi-year deal. You know, the idea is to not have people have to come in every year and start from scratch. It's great that they have a team dedicated to this. You want to have some institutional memory, but you also want to have producers who get to do it year after year. So when they learn, they don't have to learn it all over again. And these guys know how to do it, obviously. Uh, the, the You said that the Academy gets 75% of its revenue from that money coming from ABC. That's true for the rights to the Oscars. Currently, ABC pays them $110 million a year. That contract finishes in 2028. So they've got some good breathing room. They've got like six years, but they have to worry about that money going away because there's no way they're going to get that much money in the next contract because the ratings are way down. Uh, but happily, it's only 75% of the revenue. They now get like 22% of the revenue from the museum and another 3% from dues. It used to be almost everything, 90% of their budget 
budget came from the fees for the Oscars. So that's lowered a lot. They need to lower it even more and get on a better financial keel. They're doing everything they can to diversify members. The bad news, 66% are still men, 81% are still white, and 77% are still from the U.S. So, you know, mostly your members are white men in America. But... <laughs> you know, that the flip side is one out of three is a woman. Uh, almost 20% now are people of color and you've almost got 25% overseas. So that's great. I think that's all for the good. But, you know, they know they need to fix the Oscars just like the people at the Emmys should know they need to watch the Emmys. They polled their own members. 40% of Academy members didn't watch the Oscars. <laughs> They're like, ah, couldn't be bothered. <laughs> yeah. Well, if, think about it. This meeting that they held, it's an open meeting that they they held it in their big audit you know the David Geffen theater and it was like half empty and you could like tune in virtually cuz you know not everybody's in LA uh-huh. uh and and like there was hardly anybody on the on the Zoom uh feed so they're so unused know, to having them be open they didn't quite understand and you we're can, like yeah you, you know what that. i don't have time for this good luck to them and you know let me know how how it goes but you guys are kind of a mess and i don't really want to be wasting my time with it <laughs> uh, <laughs> well hopefully they they're turning it around because at least they said the right things yeah that's true first now they time have in a to while. execute yeah now the med gala thing really easy don't let journalists ask questions that's kind of pointless and stupid yes. have a few have a few like you know the the red carpet show with ryan secret you know like have right. a, like one or two where they stop off and but everybody getting their two minutes of like hey come and talk to me is stupid ha- get rid of all the the i mean there's it's like a parade of of just entourage it's never you never know who you're supposed to be looking at so if you want to do it like the met gala get rid of most of the people that are on the red carpet because they're they don't necessarily need to be there in the first place all right gosh darn it and when i saw this i went i raced to put this news story into the notes (laughs) i saw it very early i posted it to our twitter feed we were so early on this we got lots of likes on this story and lots of people commenting on it and then it was already there Oh, I you mean like, I already like, got it in there? Yes. I was like, "What do you, what do you like? Sit on the, the anyway." Uh, if the musical Cats can close, pretty much any show will close eventually, and so the final curtain will fall on Broadway for the Phantom of the Opera. The original production is still on in London, but the Broadway version takes its final bow in 2023. That's assuming a rush of ticket sales doesn't change the mind of Andrew Lloyd Webber to keep it going. COVID certainly didn't help, but after 35 years, it's safe to say the chandelier was a little rickety. Plus, you know, it was still using those, you know, incandescent bulbs, which are really hard to find now. You have to go to LED. (laughs) In any case, the music of the night, it's become a little familiar. And the pop opera, it it could use a little rest. Well... Andrew Lloyd Webber is working on some strange TV series. The The show must go on. I, I don't know. I guess it's a reality show. It's no, from the creator. No. Of, oh, it's not. Okay. It's from the creator of Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, where each season of the anthology is built around the behind the scenes excitement of putting on a live TV performance of a famous musical. When murder kills off a leading figure, the first season's musical will be the Phantom of the Opera. So it's kind of like, I guess, Grease live, but with more dead bodies. I don't really know. It's like Phantom of the TV show. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Uh, well, it's a big deal. It's the end of an era on Broadway. Not having Phantom there is kind of crazy. First of all, this this series, 
we've had for years now live performances of Annie, The Wizard of Oz, uh, Sound of Music, um, uh, and now, you know, Grease. And now they're like, hey, that's a great idea. What if we killed somebody? Now we're going to turn that into a series. Making of the live special is now a TV series. That's meta upon meta. Uh, so that's kind of funny. But the basic fact is that Cameron McIntosh said the show was losing money week to week and it was going to be losing more money than it was gaining. One interesting factoid. He revealed that the nut, the, the, the weekly grosses, the, I'm sorry, the weekly expenses of running the Phantom of the Opera were at about $850,000 before lockdown. That's pretty high, but it's a long-running show with a big orchestra and a big cast and all this stuff, big set changes. I, I, I'm sure the cast members were going, wait, how much are you making? Because I'm not making that much. Well, no, the cast, the cast is not making the money because they've been, you know, there are new people brought in every few years. So, yeah, it's not about a big star, but it's a big cast. But post-COVID has added another $100,000 to their weekly running costs. He says it costs an extra $100,000 a week to put this show on Broadway. I don't know if it's true for, maybe it's because they have a big cast and a big orchestra that makes that even more expensive. That means it now costs about $950,000 a week to mount the Phantom of the Opera. That's interesting. I'd love to know what other shows are costing in terms of COVID. Uh, and of course, that means, you know, like last week it made $870,000. Well, that means it lost $80,000 that week. That, that doesn't work. You can lose money some weeks because you know you're going to make a ton during the holidays and certain seasons. But when you're losing money most weeks, that's when you pull the plug. So, you know, the show's gone. You've got some more notes in our thing about here. Um, by the way, the Phantom of the Opera won the Tony for Best Musical. It beat out Into the Woods. The Stephen Sondheim oh classic, in, which is a great show. The Sondheim musical has been done in New York City four times over the years and is currently on Broadway in its second full revival. Phantom is still there. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of amazing. And what show will catch up? Maybe Chicago. It's got really low running costs, uh, but um, Chicago has been running. <laughs> it is 3,419 performances behind Phantom. Right. So when Phantom closes, it will have to run another 3,419 performances, about eight shows a week, in order to catch up to Phantom. By the way, if a show ran just 3,419 performances, it would be one of the 20 longest running shows in Broadway history. That's all you need to become one of the 20 biggest hits of all time. So that is a big lift. And if I was going to pick one show that would do it, it's The Lion King. Oh, yeah, that's true. I would agree. Um, but you know what? Let's move on to music because Warner Music Chief Steve Cooper was especially frank at a public conversation with Goldman Woo. Sachs and investors. I, I feel like this is really like all of these investor conversations, this particular investor conference was like negotiating in public. Yeah, all, now, all, all, that's, they're all making news now at these these goofy conferences. I'm like, why is this being, you know, why is this where they're all making headlines? But anyway. Yeah, well, he can, and Cooper can afford to, you know, be frank, so to speak. Uh, Cooper is, leading the company but plans to leave in 2023 and they're looking for a successor so he's like i'm already halfway out you know yeah he had a lot to say first uh cooper says the label is spreading out its money on more acts they're trying not to depend on superstar acts as the excellent website music business worldwide points out and that's good since big singles simply aren't as big anymore the amount of quote-unquote new music being listened to by fans is shrinking Second, he dissed a deal Universal made with Taylor Swift saying it just didn't make financial sense when Swift keeps control of her masters. Not to mention the margins, the margins. 
Finally, he really, really wants music streamers to raise their prices above $10. Cooper says music subscribers are really sticky. They love their music, they need their music, and they're not going to cancel if prices are raised. Not true. Is all of this right? Or is this a big deal or big whoop? Yeah. First of all, maybe music subscriptions are sticky because they only cost $10. Correct. When, when it's 15 then you think twice, buddy. Duh. That doesn't mean they shouldn't eventually be raised because they've obviously been lowered as inflation continues. The cost you know, from 10 years ago, now it's still $10. That means you're paying less than you were 10 years ago. But that's a different discussion. But don't think, ah, oh, they love their stuff. They'll never cancel. It's like, yeah, make it 20 bucks, and a lot of people will cancel. Uh, are there no big hits anymore? Well, they were looking at data over the last few years. You got COVID there. And I think one of the big points is that there's just so much more old music now. You know, you can always keep listening to new music, but if you just get into anything or anyone, there's a ton of music to listen. You know, when I was growing up in the 70s, there was just 20 years of backlog on rock and roll, right? 50s to the 70s. Now there's a like lot 70 years, 70 years of music to catch up on. So if you're into music, yeah, you know, you can listen to the new Ryan Adams or Taylor Swift or, or Harry Styles, but you might just get into the Sex Pistols or Joy Division or, you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival. I mean, there's just so much music out there. But they also maybe should redefine what new music is. Albums stay around a really long time. Singles stay around a really long time. Right now, they define new music as 18 months. Maybe it should be 24 months. You know, maybe that would sort of lessen that impact on, you know, big albums that hang around for two years are still seen as, you know, uh, not new music anymore. Um, and so Superstars versus a wider portfolio. You know, they're saying, look, we don't want to have just big superstars. We want a bigger portfolio. That's in the Warner Brothers DNA. That's what they should always be doing. It's always smart to have a good, strong, diverse portfolio because you never know where the next superstar is going to come from. Yeah. I mean, they could be hosting a podcast right now. Absolutely. You never know. Yeah. I mean, anyway, all of that sounds like uh, inside baseball, what you're talking about with the, in, you know, the 70 years and the, you know, the spreading out the music. And the, the, I will say this. Before we get on to Inside Baseball, uh-huh. I subscribe to at least two music services. Why? Okay. They have almost all the same thing. Yes. Uh, one is because uh, the Apple One uh, subscription. You just did it as a bundle? Yeah, it's it just bundled in. Uh, if, if they started raising their prices because of the music, I'd be like, okay, I have to make a decision. And Spotify might go because I'll keep the Apple and you know what I mean? So. Yeah. I would say be very careful what you wish for because you might wind up with less. I think all he needs to do is say maybe the bundles are too cheap. You know, the family plans seem really cheap to me. You know, I I always think, oh, gee, I wish I had a family, you know, 20 bucks for everybody for four people. Well, well, that's great, you know, and uh, but I don't have a family. I'm alone. So I pay ten dollars. So I do sometimes think, wow, those family plans really are inexpensive. Well, I just mentioned Inside Baseball, and Inside Baseball is our segment where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. Now, here's what this means for the business. It means, oh, he's still making movies? And here's what it means for you. Oh, he's still making movies? I might get to see one of them. Maybe. I don't know. What is it on Netflix? Because what we're talking about here is Woody Allen, who, by the way, is not retiring. You're going to see a lot of headlines today when we're recording. Woody Allen retiring. No, not retiring. The the new headlines are he's not retiring because two days ago was Woody Allen retiring. I'm like, well, we'll do. I got interested when I looked into his catalog. I was like, oh, that's not quite what I 
thought of, you know, my impression of his last 10 or 15 years, but in fact, it's different. But then this morning, he's like, no, no, I'm not retiring. What are you talking about? <laughs> well, he, he's currently in production on Wasp 22, a film that will be shot in Paris and entirely in French. Mon Dieu. Oui. Yeah. Uh, how, did, what, how did I know we were both going to make that joke? <laughs> at the uh, when the production Incroyable. was announced... <laughs> Super. Uh, when the production was announced, Alan said he never thought of retiring, but he also told Alec Baldwin he would probably make one or two more films. The fun was gone because people just streamed them anyway. The theatrical experience was dying. Then he told a Spanish newspaper, the new film starring Elena Anaya and Louis Garrel, it's going to be his last. If so, it will be the 50th film Alan has directed. Alan turns 87 in November. Then, by the way, as you mentioned, Michael, he clarified. He went, no, 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 no. When I said I would only make one or two more films, I, I said the current film. No, no, no. Be, no. I, I, he basically, he was saying, I never said I would retire. I said I might not make movies, basically. <laughs> he said, when I only said I would make one or two more films, and when I later said that this film was my last, what I really meant was I'm not retiring. <laughs> right. <laughs> it's just crazy. So now, most would dismiss Woody Allen's mo recent movies as one train wreck after another. His last great film to me was Husbands and Wives in 1992. That run from Annie Hall, though I love Love and Death, that's a fun movie, Annie Hall to Husbands and Wives is just tremendous. You could even stop at crimes and misdemeanors, but I will include husbands and wives as well. That's the period that matters for Woody Allen. That's where his great work was done. That's what I think. However, the last 20 years, you think, oh, bunch of junk. Actually, he's had a lot of commercial success and more critical success than I imagined. It's certainly a resurgence for him. Since it's the 2022, if I'm Woody Allen, ignoring his private life, of we're not dealing with all that, just him as a commercial director with critical acclaim, he probably feels on top of the world. Why would he even think of retiring? Look at the record. We're looking at Oscar nominations and wins and box office. In the 70s, his movies got 12 Oscar nominations. And Every single film he released in the 70s as a director was a hit. All seven movies were box office hits. A number of them were really inexpensive, like $2 million. They made $18 million. But that's a lot of money when you convert it into today's dollars. And they were all hits, sometimes big hits. Especially, of course, Annie Hall, which won Best Picture, Best Director, Best Screenplay, and Best Actress for Diane Keaton. By the way, Interiors, that dour Bergman-like film, that got five Oscar nominations. And Manhattan just got two. <laughs> yeah, maybe they, a, a, maybe they suspected something at the time. They're like, that's a little creepy. He's dating a high school student. He's like, yeah. it's right there in my movies. So that only got two nominations, one for Mario Hemingway and one for screenplay. It didn't win any. All seven films were big hits. In the 80s, he got 17 Oscar nominations and he had three wins, all for Hannah and her sisters. So that was his big, big hit in the 80s. That got seven Oscar nominations, including Best Picture, Best Director and Screenplay. And it won for Screenplay, as well as acting awards from Michael Caine and Diane Weist. By the way, in the 1980s, all the movies he released, that's his only hit. Hannah Crimes and, her and Misdemeanors? Not a hit film. No. You can look Crimes up the, and Misdemeanors was a great movie. It was indeed. The 80s is my favorite period. He made one really interesting movie after another. Purple Rose of Cairo, Zelig, Radio Days, Crime, Crimes and Misdemeanors is 89, I believe. Hannah and yes. Her Sisters. These are great movies, uh, but they were not commercially successful. One film was a hit in the 80s. In the 90s, he still got some Oscar love. 12 Oscar nominations. 
two acting wins, one for Diane Weist and one for Mira Sorvino in Mighty Aphrodite. Bullets Over Broadway was his one big hit. He always has at least one a decade. That got six nominations and one win, uh, you know, for Diane Weist. So still some critical love in the 90s, but hits? None. Bullets Over Broadway cost $20 million to make. It grossed $37 million. So for two decades in the 80s and 90s, he had just one hit. Over 20 years, he just had one film, that partially because he was making bigger and bigger movies that were costing $25, $30 million. A lot of his movies were more expensive than we realized. But even if they were 15 or 20 million, a lot of them would not be commercially successful. Then you get into the 2000s, he's got three hit films, Match Point, Scoop, and Victi Cristina Barcelona. And in the 2010s, again, four hit films, Midnight in Paris, To Rome with Love, Blue Jasmine, Magic in the Moonlight. He had his, you know, his big movie in the 2000s was, of course, Match Point, though it didn't get any Oscar love. And in the 2010s, his big movie was Midnight in Paris. That got a lot of Oscar love and uh, won him a screenplay award. So he got seven Oscar nominations, mostly for Midnight in Paris. Kate Blanchett won a Best Actress for Blue Jasmine. So if you look at the last 20 years, Seven hit films. That's a hell of a lot more than he had in the 80s and the 90s. He's still getting some Oscar love. There was a real dip in the 2000s. So, you know, if you adjust for inflation like Sperling wants to do, obviously the 70s is monster. Uh, Everything you always wanted to know about sex, $130 million. Sleeper, $120 million. Love and Death, $110 million. Annie Hall, $185 million. Manhattan, $163 million. Every movie in the 70s was a hit. That's his era. But you know what? The last, you know... 15 years, Match Point, Vicky Christina, To Rome With Love, Blue Jasmine, Magic in the Moonlight, they all made good money, some of them in the hundreds of millions. Midnight in Paris, if you adjust for inflation, is the biggest hit of his career. It made $162 million, released in 2011. That's about $213 million in today's terms. That means it's bigger than Annie Hall. It's his biggest film of all time. It got four Oscar nominations. He won Best Screenplay. So if you're Woody Allen... Hey, I've had four hit films in the last, you know, nine years. I'm doing great. <laughs> so you can imagine why he'd be like 87 years old and going, I'm not going anywhere. Whether you would like him. And of course, the last few movies, however, barely got released. And you, oh will, you, you will see more and more in the 90s, in the, in the 2000s, movie after movie being people saying, that's the worst movie of his career. Then they go, that's the worst movie. of No, no, no. This is the worst movie. So the hits and the misses have been a lot missier and messier. And, of course, he has his uh, private life with um, legal travails and ugly accusations uh, with a lot of heat behind them and the fact that he left his wife for her adopted daughter, which is creepy and weird, though, on the other side, they're still together. So who the hell knows? But just looking at him commercially and critically, he's still on top of the world. Rifkin's Festival was his last movie. And, oh, my gosh, this was such a bad movie. I mean, it was like... I. I could, I could barely make it through. I was like, I, I could, what did he direct this with his eyes closed? I mean, it just made no, it made sense, but it was just directed so sloppily. For me, it was The Curse of the Jade Scorpion. That was from, uh, what was it, 2001. That movie, while I was watching it, I was like, wait, who's this? Wait, what happened? I was forgetting it while it happened. It was so anonymous and so forgettable that I literally could not concentrate on the movie while I was watching it. So that was that's my personal choice. But I haven't watched a number of them in recent years because there's no point. 
Uh, I mean, I thought actually Kate Winslet was good in Wonder Wheel, not a good movie, but she was good. I thought Kate Blanchett was good in Blue Jasmine, which was not bad. Midnight in Paris is not bad, but it was way overpraised. But, you know, I haven't seen To Run With Love. I haven't seen Magic in the Moonlight, A Rational Man, A Rainy Day in New York, Rifkin's Festival, You Will Meet a Tall Dark Stranger, whatever works. Cause, uh, I mean, you now you're you just know. like, it's, yeah. it's like. I mean, there's movie after movie, Melinda, Melinda, anything else, Hollywood ending, the one with <laughs> Larry David, you know. There's a lot Whatever of works. Yeah. Whatever works. I think uh, an artist's reputation, putting aside again his personal life, uh, it helps if you don't have to watch all their movies. I think 50 years from now, you watch Woody Allen, you'll watch the, the 10 or 12 or really 15 really good movies that he has, and that will be his, you know, to his credit. You don't have to watch the bad stuff. It's like Fellini. I have friends in my movie group called The Iris. They hate Fellini. They're so, I'm like, well, my God, what are you talking about? La Dolce Vita, Eight and a Half, Armacord, uh, Knights of Cabirian. They're like, oh, but they watched all the crap that came after them. One movie after another that was Fellini-esque and just tiresome and, you know, retreading the same old ideas. They had to watch them and review them, so they're just sick of it. And me, I only watch the good stuff. Yeah, well, you know, remember when Godard died just last week, nobody was talking about goodbye to language. They were all talking about <laughs> Exactly. So. And some people have died this week. Sperlin would be happy to know, just two. One of, them oh, is, one of them is actor Henry Silva, who dies at the age of 95. Due to his Sicilian and Spanish heritage, along with a very distinctive face, he was pigeonholed by Hollywood as a bad guy. But he made the most of it, brawling with Frank Sinatra in The Manchurian Candidate, where, of course, this guy of Sicilian and Spanish heritage played a Korean. <laughs> to the original Ocean's Eleven, Steven Seagal's Above the Law, Jim Jarmusch's Ghost Dog, The Way of the Samurai, and his final appearance, a cameo in the reboot of Ocean's Eleven in 2001. Follow the link, see his face, and you'll say, oh God, yeah, that guy, I know him. He was born in Brooklyn. He quit school at 13 to wash dishes and take acting classes. He first gained attention, this is a good movie, the Bud Boddicker Western, The Tall T. He flourished in Europe in the 70s and beyond, where his talents were more appreciated, and I I haven't seen most of those movies. He did voice work on the DC animated shows, often playing Bane. And he even appeared in what I consider one of the worst films of all time, Megaforce, a movie so bad, it's not even fun. But it's a living and his credits run to about 140 on IMDb. So if you look at him, you, you saw him when you saw his photo, you went, oh yeah, that guy, right? Yes, exactly. <laughs> right. Um, I, you're not a big comic book person, are you? Not really. No. Yeah, well, I think this is still cool, though. Comic book pioneer Lily Renee Phillips died at 101. She was kind of embarrassed by working in the comic book industry. She did it in the 40s, but she gritted her teeth when the other employees, all men, stared at her like a piece of meat. Her own daughter didn't even know the work she'd accomplished. But for a period in the 40s, Phillips was a pioneer, of course, simply for being a woman. And she really did groundbreaking, beautiful work. She expanded the standard grid format in really innovative ways. And she created some great modern women in her comics. She's dead, of course, but her work on comic books like Senorita Rio is more appreciated than ever. Here's her story. Her family was very wealthy and had to flee Austri Austria when the Nazis showed up in 1938. She got access to England, but her parents had to go to a different 
different route to the U.S. Now, just getting somewhere else was tricky at that point because war was taken on. When everyone survived, her parents were like, come to us. She made the perilous journey to the U.S. during World War II. In fact, one sailor fell overboard, and so her ship was not part of a caravan like they normally would be to increase the odds, like maybe somebody else would get shot. So they were zigzagging across the ocean all alone, but she made it to America, and to make ends meet, everyone took jobs. You know, they used to be wealthy aristocrats. Now, her dad was working, her mom was working, and she was working. She was even a model for uh, the head of a mannequin that appeared in the department store Peck and Peck. She said all her life, people would look at her and go, I know you. (laughs) But it was really the mannequin they knew. And her mother saw an ad for illustrators, pushed her child to apply for, and before she knew it, her career was off. Later in life, she wrote and illustrated children's books and did textile design. Uh, And she did other work in comics that were less glamorous, like comic books featuring Abbott and Costello and even Elsie the Borden Cow. But it's her work on books like The Werewolf Hunters, Jane Martin, and Senorita Rio that live on. By the way, there's a biography if you want to learn more about her. It's called Lily Renee, Escape Artist. It came out in 2011. Fittingly, it's a graphic novel. Ah, okay. Well, so that now we know what to read. That's and now right. you know what to listen to. In fact, you know to listen to us every week. Ooh, do we have a show us. next week? Why wouldn't we? Well, okay, great. Glad to hear it. Okay. Well, you know what? Uh, make sure you, that you subscribe in iTunes, the Google Podcast Directory, Microsoft Marketplace, Stitcher, Amazon. Spotify, Apple, anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can find us. And in some of those uh, directories, you can rate and review us, and it helps us out when you do. Now, you can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. That's where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode on showbizsandbox.com. That's also where you'll find those ways to contact us, dirt at showbizsandbox.com, or voicemail, 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. Or we're on Twitter, at Showbiz Sandbox is our handle on Twitter. Facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox is where you can like our page. Uh, Again, all this information on our website, showbizsandbox.com. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website, who is MGMT.com. Michael Gilt has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? SenoritaReal.com. I just like oh. saying that. Okay. Uh, you like rolling your R's, I think. See. Si. Uh, well, you know what? If you can't find any of Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry there, why not head on over to MichaelGilt.com, where all of his work is aggregated? Some of my work can be found on CelluloidJunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs> Rest in peace and good luck, Chuck. I I think I just lost my chance at an OBE. Yeah, probably. <laughs>